Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 8. Let's read down through verse 12, and then we're going to pray and begin our study this evening. The Lord sent a word against Jacob, and it has fallen on Israel. All the people will know. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down, but we will replace them with cedars. Therefore the Lord shall set up the adversaries of resin against him, and spur his enemies on, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind. And they shall devour Israel with an open mouth. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Father, this evening as we come to your word, we pray that you will Allow us the opportunity to receive fully and completely the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit for your wisdom and for your understanding of these words, these verses, this chapter. As we see the day of Christ approaching, There is also that day coming when many will have heard the word but did not heed the word. May it be, Father, that what goes forth tonight will be an encouragement, an exhortation, an admonition to take seriously your word, and to take seriously the promise, and the promise says of Jesus Christ to return and to come again. We know, Lord God, that we live in a time of great deception, and one great deception, Lord, is being thrown toward the believers, toward the elect. The enemy would have no problems with doing all he can to deceive the very elect in these last days. To take away the, the importance of studying the Word of God. To take away the importance of studying prophecy. And while there are those voices, Lord, that are crying out even within the church, quit studying the Bible or quit studying prophecy, it goes completely against what Jesus our Lord said to us, that He said when we see the day approaching, we need to understand the Word. And so, Lord, we want to be faithful in understanding Your Word this evening. 
may it be clear to us and may we be able to continue to expound and pass that word on to others, especially those who are without light and without Christ. We ask, Lord, all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Following the great prophecy of the Messiah in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah returns to the local conditions of his time by describing a message that the Lord who rules all things sent against the kingdom of Ephraim and Samaria, specifically to the northern kingdom of Israel, although the prophecy was a warning as well to Judah, the southern kingdom, uh, and the warning is that God is active and indeed active in the affairs of His people. The southern kingdom of Judah should have realized that she too would be destroyed if she persisted in the activities that characterized the northern kingdom of Israel. Assyria from the east had already defeated Syria or Aram, and now they were coming against Israel, devastating the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. They would destroy the land which would demoralize the people, and yet Israel refused to repent before God. And in their arrogance they were saying that they would build stronger and they would build better what the enemy had torn down. And so they still didn't get it. They still weren't getting the message that God was sending them. They were not going to escape this judgment whatsoever. The Lord was going to raise up adversaries against them. But early on in this prophecy, we, we deal with the serious effect that pride has on individuals and even nations and peoples. When you go back to verse 9, it talks about the people of Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria who say, in pride and arrogance of heart. And so pride is a serious thing on individuals as well as even nations and peoples. We are... I'm sure familiar with Proverbs 16, verse 18. that says pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit or an arrogant spirit before a fall. There's always some sense of pride. And there's always some sense of arrogance and conceit when a fall comes. Because pride, arrogance, and conceit all deal with the self. And when we care more about the self than we care about others, and especially about what God has said in His Word, concerning certain things that we're aiming toward or going toward, because we're looking at ourselves as if we are able to handle, or we're able to do, or we're able to accomplish on our own, and in the flesh, we're going to fall. And time and again from the very beginning, even from the very beginning of the Scriptures, at the fall of man, it was pride. It was pride that affected Lucifer in eternity past. It was pride that affected Eve in hearing from the serpent about being like God. It was pride 
in the fall of man. Pride goes before destruction. That should wake us up enough. Hey, listen, we ought not to be proud and haughty and conceited. Just before that in Proverbs 16, verse 5, listen to what it says. Everyone, everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. That's a tremendous statement. Everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. And you would think abominations, every time we see abomination or the word abomination, it's usually dealing with idolatry. And in some way tying the idolatry to the sexual sins of men and the sexual sins of those who were, who were worshiping idols and all. Everyone proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Though they join forces, none will go unpunished. It's interesting here that in, in, the, in the phrase in verse 5, though they join forces, literally means though they are hand in hand. Folks, it doesn't matter how many people are going to get together today in this day and age and in this time across the world in humanistic endeavors, in humanistic pride of saying that we as men and we as, as people, we as human beings are strong enough, smart enough, powerful enough to become like God. We don't need God. Why do you think the world says there is no God? Because they want to be God. And it doesn't matter if they join forces, if they go hand in hand, they go unpunished. This, this will not go unpunished, I should say. The word of the Lord, you see, is something more than just a mere sound. When it tells us in verse 8, the Lord sent a word against Jacob, it, it's something more than just a mere sound. He isn't just sending a word as far as my voice is being heard tonight. Well, it's just a word, you know, it's just sound. But he's sending something more. He sends it as a message. Like a stone, it falls on Israel with a devastating effect so that all the people become aware of it. Folks, all of the devastations that have been happening in our world for the last five years, ten years, fifteen years, major devastations, and there are more to come. I'm not trying to be a, a you know, a, a, a gloomsayer here, or a doomsayer, as it were. It's just what the Bible is telling us. Before the Lord comes, it's going to get worse and it's going to get better. But He sends a message. With everything that has happened within the last few years, the great major devastations that have taken place, it is affecting everybody on this planet. Whether it be the terroristic strikes, or whether it be the great natural disasters of hurricanes, tsunamis. It has affected the world. And like a faithful servant, the Word of God accomplishes all 
that God pleases. The Word of God accomplishes all that God pleases. For the Word of God is the bearer of His power. The Word of God is the bearer of His power which goes into effect the moment that it is spoken, whether it is spoken as a promise or whether it is spoken as a threat. Turn to Isaiah, verse, I should say Isaiah 55, verse 10. Many of you are familiar with this passage. Verses 10 and 11, Isaiah 55 says, For as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth in bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And so... When God says through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord sent a word against Jacob and it has fallen on Israel, this is no mere threat. It's no mere sound. It's no mere word. But the Lord sent a word against Jacob refers to the ministries of the prophets Amos and Hosea as part of what he's doing. These were contemporary prophets of Isaiah. And in the case of Amos, for example... It was divine mercy, listen, it was divine mercy pleading over and over and over with the people. God pleading mercy for them. Over and over and over. Amos chapter 4 verse 6, if you will. Also I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. You'd think that he was a dentist. you think that he was doing something good for their mouth. For their dental hygiene. You know what that means? When it says that He's given you cleanness of teeth. Man, you have, your teeth are so clean because you haven't eaten anything. There isn't any food to eat. And lack of bread in all your places. Do you get the picture now? Yet you have not returned to Me, says the Lord. I also will ha- withheld rain from you when there were still three months to the harvest. I made it rain on one city. I withheld rain from another city. One part was rained upon it. Where it did not rain, the part withered. Boy, we've had some kind of funky rains around here, haven't we? We often wonder, how come it rains everywhere else? And now all of a sudden this summer we didn't wonder anymore. So two or three cities wandered to another city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I blasted you with blight and mildew. When your gardens increased, your vineyards, your fig trees, and your olive trees, the locusts devoured them. Yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. I sent among you a plague after the manner of Egypt. Your young men I killed with a sword along with your captive horses. I made the stench of your camps come up into your nostrils, yet you have not returned to me, says the Lord. Doing everything to bring them to mercy. To cry out, God, have mercy on us. God, have mercy. Have mercy. We have sinned against you. We have gone against your word. We've gone against what you've said to do. But they haven't done it. They haven't returned, you see. He goes on in verse 11, I overthrew some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand plucked from the burning, yet you have not returned to me, 
saith the Lord. You see, the Lord sent the word through the other prophets. And getting back to our text, there is something to be said about the pride and the arrogance of heart that is shown by the people (coughs) of the northern kingdom of Israel. For in their pride, the leaders and the people were saying, in effect, who cares if God judges us? Listen carefully. They're saying, in effect, who cares if God judges us? Whatever is torn down, we will rebuild with something better. We have nothing to fear from what God can bring against us. Stop for just a moment and think about our own country right now. In terms of prosperity, in terms of what nations have, we are the richest nation in the world. We have so much, we waste so much. And there are times when we have a national attitude of pride that says, hey, you know, we don't care what God does. Besides, what if there isn't any God anyway? So we go on with our millions of abortions each year. We go on with gay pride parades. We go on with all of these things to push into the face of God. And we wonder as a nation, why things happen. Who cares if God judges us? Whatever's torn down, we'll make it better. We've got the technology. We've got the computers. We've got the wisdom. We've got the smarts. We have nothing to fear from what God can bring against us. Time to start thinking. Maybe we better start fearing what God can bring against us. As believers in Jesus Christ, we already know. But as believers, we ought not to be asleep. God called us to pray. And He called us to pray for our nation. And we ought to do that. But it's not going to stem the inevitable. The inevitable will come. This is why we need to be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ for His church. It's time to get ready for the rapture of the church. It's time to get ready for Jesus said, I'm going to come. I'm going to gather you to myself. I'm going to take you home. Because when I do, that's when everything is going to fall into tribulation. God loves his church. We do not preach the rapture of the church as some, you know, way, just just some way of escape. We preach it because God knows what he's doing. And we also preach it because we know that the tribulation that's coming on this earth for seven years is not where he wants his church to be. The age of the church is going to go, and it's been going on, and there's been persecution. There have been a lot of martyrs in the church. There have been a lot of people who have died for the Lord Jesus Christ in over 2,000 years. We don't make ourselves any better. We're going to, well, I've got to suffer for Christ in the, in the tribulation. No. Read the scriptures. Understand what God is doing. The problem today with, with prophecy is that there's some people going around teaching that you ought not to study prophecy. Or we're getting the church in trouble when people start following that and wondering, well, why not, you know? Well, we need to go out here and there. We need to, well, yes, we do. We do need to go and help people that are poor. Yes, we do need to take the gospel here and there. Yes, we do need to 
go into all the world, but we need to tell them Jesus is coming. And folks, that's part of the gospel. It's part of the good news that Jesus promised everything that he did about salvation, but also that he's coming again. And it's a deception and a lie to not study the gospel, to not study the word of God, to not study prophecy. It's a lie. And so is this not the attitude, you see, of many of people today who trust in human accomplishment or humanistic accomplishment and endeavor more than they do the God who created them? In Psalm 118, verses 8 and 9, it says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Oh, that the church would live with this, this verse out of daily. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes and senators and governors and presidents, kings. Do you understand? Do you understand? It is better to trust in the Lord. Jeremiah 17, this is a great passage here. I want you to keep your finger here because we're going to close here, I think. Maybe. Well, maybe not. Well, keep your finger anyway. Keep your finger in a lot of places in your scriptures. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. Notice it says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. You know, I think if we really trust the scriptures, I'd, I'd trust that verse of scripture a lot. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the, porch, uh, the parts, I'm sorry, the parts places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green. Will not be anxious in the year of drought. Nor will cease from yielding fruit. Folks, that, that could be a tremendous prophecy for today. That those who trust in the Lord today, we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to worry about. No matter what we see happening in this world, in this country, across the globe. I know a lot of people that just, they, they watch the news, you know, whether it's CNN or Fox or whatever. They watch the news and they just fear, oh my God, oh my God. Now, well, well, you say, oh my God, but do you trust Him? Do you really trust the Lord with all your heart? A person who sees all of these things happen will say, oh God, I know you're coming soon. Thank you, Jesus, you're coming. This is happening. Let's get ready. We're planted by waters. We're, we're, we're going to be... We're not, we don't have to fear when heat comes. Man, the heat's already here. And I'm not talking about the weather. You can't trust the weather, man. You've got to trust the Lord. Heat's already here. It's all across the globe. I really hope... I'm going to, this is a commercial here, but I've got to tell you. I really hope... I, I hope that the Lord tears just enough. If the Lord tears, that He'll let us go to Israel again. We went to Israel this last March, and I mean, it was just a tremendous opportunity just to see what God was doing in this day and in this time. And I know that the things that have happened over there kind of scare people. Oh, I don't want to go. I, I want, you know what? It's safer over there than it is over here. 
And I tell you what, we're seeing so many people die on the streets from motorcycle accidents and car accidents and murders and all kinds of stuff in our own city that are happening more in, in, in just this little area than in Israel. But to go over there to see the places where Jesus walked, the things that, 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 that give evidence of a living God who came to us and died and rose again from the dead. Oh, man. Lord, if you tarry one more time, we don't go. And we need not be afraid of it, you know. Because God's going to go with us. Besides, if He comes and we're over there, what a better place to go. Okay, enough. Commercial. So certainly it was God's desire then for Israel to repent and to turn to Him. But even in this chastening, this discipline, this... this stuff that was going on toward them. They refused, notice, they refused to repent, but they hardened themselves. They hardened themselves toward the Lord. And so then we see this little phrase four times, three times here in chapter 9, one more time in chapter 10. This phrase, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Verse 12, you see that? For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Three times we'll see it. Two more times in this chapter, one more time in the next. Verses 12, 17, and 21. And once at the beginning of chapter 10. The idea is that when God's people return to Him, His anger and His chastening will be complete. Please listen to that again. I don't want you to miss what I said. The idea is that when God's people return to Him, His anger and His chastening will be complete. But because they refuse, his hand is stretched out still. God wasn't ready to stop his work of judgment. There's a few times that you want to check in the scriptures. Anytime you see his stretched out hand or his stretched out arm or outstretched arm. Sometimes it's a beautiful verse of scripture that talks about God's outstretched arm. That that there's nothing too hard for God. And there isn't anything too hard for God. But many times that phrase, stretched out arm or stretched out hand, is dealing with judgment. And it is definitely dealing with judgment here. And so, with that in mind, well, let me just touch on one more thing before we go on. I'm trying to see if I kind of skipped over, but I don't think I did. And having to do really just with the, the mention, verse 11, as you go back just for a, a second here. After they say the bricks have fallen down, we will, rebuild, we will rebuild with hewn stones. The sycamores are cut down. We will replace them with cedars. In other words, you know, cedars, they couldn't build anything with sycamores. They could build with cedar. They wanted to build. See, it was man's intention to build. It was, you know, build something greater than what God had already provided. But then you'll notice it says in verse 12, the Syrians before and the Philistines behind just before then, verse 11, the Lord set up the adversaries of Rezin against him. The adversaries of Rezin, of course, Rezin from, uh, from Syria, was, were the Assyrians. So he sets up the Assyrians against you know, the, uh, Ephraim and, and spurs his enemies on. Then the Assyrians and, and the Philistines behind. Now, why are they mentioned here? Because at one time, Israel, the northern kingdom, aligned themselves with Syria to be against whom? Against Judah, their own brothers. So you see, then what, what's happening here? They shall devour Israel with an open mouth. 
the very same people that they wanted to have some kind of a alliance with, they eventually come and they get them. Be careful of the alliances you make outside. Outside of your relationship to God. Best not to. Isaiah 9 verse 13 says, For the people do not turn to him who strikes them, nor do they seek the Lord of hosts. Therefore the Lord will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. The elder and the honorable, he is the head. The prophet who teaches lies, he is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows. Interesting, isn't it? That even in the law, there are those provisions made to bring up young men in the Lord, to take care of the fatherless, to take care of the widows, but because of the sins of the whole nation, you'll notice, the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are destroyed. Therefore the Lord will have no joy in their young men, nor have mercy on their fatherless and widows, for everyone is a hypocrite, whoa, and an evildoer. And every mouth seeks, speaks, I should say, folly. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. There that, there that phrase is again. It is a sad thing that each episode of judgment was followed by Israel's refusal to turn to the Lord. They were like so many stubborn, dumb animals that resist even more when they are beaten or corrected. You ever had an animal like that? Now, certainly the donkey, you know, we've talked about how they represent the stiff-necked, the ones who, you know, you're trying to pull them in one direction, they keep going back. The more you pull or the more you hit, the more they go back. This is what he's describing here. This is what's happening here. They had this stubbornness. They had this, this and, and certainly what is stubbornness? I mean, stubbornness is just, a, uh, you know, the, uh, the effect of uh, what, uh, what the heart wants of itself and for itself. I want you to notice for a moment what is written in Proverbs 3. And verses 11 and 12, most of you should be familiar with this. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, the correction or the discipline of the Lord. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. <clears throat> For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. When fathers bring up their children properly with correction, certainly it has to be loving discipline, loving correction. But when it's done properly, we realize as we're growing up, let's say as children growing up, the correction we don't like, the discipline we don't like, but it does something inside of us that at some point in time in our life we say, I, I'm thankful for what my father did or my mother did to bring me up in this way, to keep me focused on the things that are right, to keep me focused on the things that are good and not to sway to either side to be eaten up by the things that are not right. Sometimes that comes early on. Sometimes it comes way 
later in life. Sometimes it doesn't come and we regret it too late in life. If I had just listened, if I had just realized that my parents loved me, my, my father loved me and cared for me, all he was trying to do was, was keep me right and keep me safe. But here it is. My son, don't despise the chastening. Don't despise the discipline. Don't despise the correction of the Lord because the Lord loves you. When we as pastors have to make a correction in somebody's life and just say, you know what, you're happy you've expressed to us what the problem is. Here's what you need to do. And you get upset at us. I'm just telling you what you came to do because God loves you. You need to take this and do what it says. And we love you too and we want you to go the right way. Oh, you're judging me. Well, you shouldn't have come then. So we didn't come here to judge. We're not here to judge you. We're to help you. We're to love you. Sometimes we think that love is, you know, give us the give us the ice cream cone, give us the, you know, give us the good stuff, give us the candy, give us, you know, the cakes and the pies. No, you'll just get big and full. But you won't be. You won't be right. The idea here is not only accepting God's chastening and not fighting against it, but also it's about returning to Him and learning from the lesson. Learning from the lesson. I've been a Christian for about 35 years. And I can tell you without question that I haven't learned everything that there is to learn. I can still grow. I can still learn. And I want to. But I want to learn and grow toward Christ. I want to learn and grow toward Jesus. And that because that's where that's where the peace comes when we learn what's right. And so this is the message given even to the body of Christ in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 5 says, And you have forgotten, here to the church, Paul says, You've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, and what is he quoting? Proverbs 3, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by Him. For whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every son whom He receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, if, uh, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit. In other words, He does what He does with us. He disciplines us. He corrects us and chastens us so that we can profit from it, so that we can benefit. For they indeed a few for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but He for our profit that we may be partakers of what? His holiness that we may be partakers of His holiness. 
That's verse 10, by the way. Oh, you don't see it up there. That's verse 11. Verse 10, you see there. We may be partakers of His holiness. See, think about it. What is it that you want to be a partaker of with the Lord? Some people say, man, if you come to the Lord, you can be partakers of a whole bunch of stuff. You can have this and you can have that. You can have big cars and big houses and big this and big that. And And He wants to benefit us. He wants us to be benefited by being partakers of His holiness. We are blessed, folks. We are blessed beyond belief. And we ought to be thankful and grateful to God for what we have. But folks, be a partaker of the holiness of God. Now, he says, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Hallelujah. (laughs) I know that, man. Amen. But painful. Very painful. A lot of times that pain isn't on the outside, isn't inflicted upon our bodies. It's a pain that's right inside here, the heart. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained. There's the key word. Trained by it. That's what discipline, chastening, correction is all about. Training for righteousness. Training that we might be partakers of His holiness. And as we learned last Sunday, who suffered for us so much? Like no one else has ever suffered even before He was taken to the cross, even before He was charged with any crime, but our Lord Jesus Himself. Well, I've got to get back to Isaiah. So because the northern kingdom refused to repent and to get right with God, they were going to be cut off as a nation, taken into captivity by the Assyrians, and in particular the leadership of the nation would be cut off, which means most of the time, to be killed. It has been said that that expression, if you'll go back up to the text here for just a moment, and that text in verse 15, um, 14, Therefore the Lord will cut, off his, uh, will cut off head and tail from Israel, palm branch and bulrush in one day. So when you look at that, that expression, palm branch and bulrush, it indicates the same thing as head and tail. In other words, a branch grows upward. And so refers to the high and important people of the population. The bulrush grows in muddy marshes and refers to the lowest element of the population. The scum, in other words. If you will, this was a great term for the false prophets. The tail. They thought they were up there pretty high. They were prophets. They claimed to be prophets. They tried to look like prophets. They tried to smell like prophets. But they were just the lowest the bull rushes. 
And so both the political and the religious leaders led the people down the path of destruction. And while Isaiah was telling them the truth, nonetheless the people bought into the lie and judgment came. I want you to think of the story of King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat as the north and the south came together to go against Ramoth Gilead. They came together to go against Ramoth Gilead, a good king with a wicked king. And this would not fare well for King Jehoshaphat, who was the good king, by the way. Jehoshaphat felt obligated to help this wicked King Ahab out for, uh, to, you know, to help him out uh, because his son was married to Ahab's daughter. And the prophets of the northern kingdom all said to go and God would give them the victory over their enemy. That's what they were hearing. And we're even told what one prophet does in Second Chronicles 18. Look at Second Chronicles 18, verse 10. It says, Now Zedekiah, the son of Hena'anah, had made horns of iron for himself. And he said, Thus saith the Lord, With these you shall gore the Syrians until they are destroyed. So he makes these horns. He says, This is what's going to happen to them. You know, prophets used to do stuff like that. And all the prophets prophesied, saying, Yes, go up to Ramoth Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will deliver it into the king's hands. And even the king said before this, he said in verses 6 and 7, but Jehoshaphat, first of all, Jehoshaphat asked the question, he says, Is there not still a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? And so notice verse 7, what Ahab says. He said, The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is still one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord... You know, that, that's not saying a lot for his own prophets. Because he said, well, there's one man who inquires, we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies good concerning me, but always evil. <laughs> he is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. And Jehoshaphat said, let not the king say such things. Hey, you know, we've got to listen to this guy. So in Second Chronicles 8, verses 14 through 17, notice what happens. And if you want to read the whole story, i just got to give you portions of it. But it says, Then he came to the king, and the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead, or shall I refrain? And he said, Oh, go and prosper, and they shall be delivered into your hand. He said, I mean, you know, he's, you know he, he thinks, This king never listens to me. Yeah, go ahead. Right? So the king said to him, How many times shall I make you swear that you tell me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? And then he said, I saw, now notice, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his house in peace. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, did I not tell you he would not prophesy good concerning me but evil? But he was telling him the truth. Later on, and again, read the rest of it, but down in verse 22. You see, Ahab was not interested in the truth of God, but in having his ears tickled. And so in this battle, what happened? Ahab was killed, just as the prophet said would happen. But in verse 22, it says, Therefore, look, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these prophets of yours, and the Lord has declared disaster against you. He told them the truth, and it happened. All kinds of false prophets today. Deception is a big thing today. I want to remind you, when you read the Gospels, especially toward the end of the Gospels, before 
Jesus uh, has this supper with his disciples. When he talks about the end time things, he warned of a lot of things, but four times he warns of deception. Four times more than any other single thing, he warns of deception. And this is what we have to be ready for in this day and time. Now getting back to our text, as much as God wanted to heal His people, He couldn't because of their stiff-necked rebellion against Him. And the Lord was ready with forgiveness, but judgment would come because of their sin. The judgment against Israel's impenitence was not enough. There was still sin to judge, and God wasn't ready to stop His work of judgment. And it says again, For all His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. He's not done. And in verse 18 now we go on and it says, For wickedness burns as the fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and kindle in the thickets of the forest. They shall mount up like rising smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts the land is burned up and the people shall be as fuel for the fire. Hey, that's, that's, a, God, that's a heavy picture. The people will be as fuel for the fire. No man shall spare his brother. As a matter of fact, he talks about that in a moment. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry. He shall devour on the left hand and not be satisfied. Every man shall eat the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh shall devour Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh. Together they shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. Despite everything that happens to the people, they refuse to break with sin. Um, in, in a very moving poetic passage here, the prophet Isaiah now presents Israel's ungodliness as a fire that sets everything around it ablaze with the speed of wind like a forest fire, and it consumes all things in its path. And beginning with a dry underbrush, the thorns and the thistles, it quickly spreads to the green trees, and the whole forest is ablaze. And so the fire of sin has set all Israel on fire. And in that fire burns the consuming wrath of the Lord Almighty God. For sin bears within itself its own punishment and its own ruin. Isaiah 1 verse 9. We've already covered this a long time ago. Isaiah 1 verse 9 says, Unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been made like Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Destroyed by fire and brimstone. Isaiah 1 verse 31. The strong shall be as tinder and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. You see, Isaiah has already heard from the Lord about this fire. And it brings to mind what James says in the, in the New Testament. In James chapter 1 verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, notice verse 15. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And just think of what sin is when it spreads like a fire. It's only going to bring forth death so then the people fall prey they fall prey to the fire that ignites the wrath of the Lord and all because brother consumes brother in mutual antagonism brother against brother Ephraim against Manasseh Manasseh against Ephraim think about that for just a moment 
In Isaiah 5, already something we've studied before, verse 24, it says, Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust, because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And think of how they will bite and consume each other with unappeasable fury, all the more fiercely, the more closely that they're related. Ephraim and Manasseh, Manasseh and Ephraim. What's so relative about them? Well, Ephraim and Manasseh are the brother tribes descended from Joseph. And for only a moment there is a truce when both march against brother Judah. In gruesome detail, the prophet speaks of the carnage that one Israelite will inflict on another. The wildfire of God's judgment burns, but God merely let the evil, hateful passions of men burn wild among themselves. That's what happened. The Lord didn't need to start the fire or fan the flames. He simply took away the fire retardant that had held the evil, hate-filled passions of men in check. You see in Proverbs 28, 24, it says, Whoever robs his father or his mother and says it is no transgression, the same is companion to a destroyer. He who is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. He who trusts in his own heart is a fool, but whoever walks wisely will be delivered. Can you imagine a whole nation of people walking unwisely? All of them wanting to have their own passions Filled and fulfilled. Burning within their own hearts against the things of God. Against the light of God. Against the fire of God. You see, this is quite ironic that we talk about a nation destroying itself with the fire of their own passions and their own hearts against each other. Because what was it that led Israel out of their captivity in Egypt? What was it that led them out? It was God Himself who said, I will go before you as a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they trusted in unholy fire. They trusted in unclean fire. They trusted in wicked and evil fire. Man still deals with that today. Anyone who is without Christ, the fires of the passions of men's hearts and men's mind begin to burn in them. Where there is that kind of fire and passion, there is lack of the true fire and compassion of Jesus Christ. This continues on in the next chapter, and we'll cover that next time. But if you notice in verse 4, at the end of verse 4 of chapter 10, the very same thing is said. So there are four stanzas, if you will, four stanzas of judgment here against Israel. It says at the end of verse 4 of chapter 10, For all this his anger is not turned away his hand is stretched out still. Let us not be 
And let not man be like those who would say, who cares if God judges us? Whatever is torn down, will we build with something better? We have nothing to fear from what God can bring against us. Let it not be that we would ever get to that point or that place in our lives. Because all of us, even believers in Jesus Christ, we are told in 1 Corinthians that all of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now the good thing about that is that standing before the judgment seat of Christ is standing before the mercy seat of Christ. For all will be judged before God in that day. But better to stand before the mercy seat of Jesus Christ than to stand before the white throne judgment of God where everyone who has rejected God and Jesus Christ his Son, our Lord and Savior, will stand in judgment for the things that He has done in this life. And this is the reason why we have such a wonderful opportunity every time we gather in the name of Jesus to examine ourselves by the Word of God, to examine ourselves to see that we are in the faith, not to take for granted that we are saved because we said a prayer 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But to know that there is a continuous and a constant fellowship, communion with the Lord. And that in that we are going to be growing each and every day in the love of Christ, growing in the Word of God, growing in the walk of faith through the power of the Holy Spirit growing in our knowledge of the Lord, having a desire more for Him than anything in this world, having a desire more for Christ than the air that we breathe and the water that we drink than the food that we eat, giving thanks for every little thing that we have, but knowing one thing, that there is no other way to God, no other way to the Father except through Jesus Christ. I believe it because Jesus said it. and checking our hearts based upon His precious Word. God is so good, and He's so merciful. What more do we need? He has given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness through Jesus Christ. Who wants more than that? Do you know that if you believe in Jesus Christ tonight, you already have heaven? It's yours. And you're already there, the Bible says. In Ephesians, just read Ephesians chapter 1. We're already citizens of heaven. We're no longer of this world. We're just passing through. And while we're still to be good citizens here, so we might be a good light for the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we don't belong here. This isn't our home. Where Jesus is, that's our home. Where the throne of God is, that's where we reside. 
Be encouraged, folks. Jesus is coming. And He's coming soon. And He can come at any moment. And we need to be ready for that. And I tell you what, when you read a prophecy like we read just, just a little while ago in, in Isaiah 9, I tell you, I don't want to mess around with the fire. Billy Joel sang a song a few years ago, you know, we didn't start the fire. Yeah, we did. Started right in here. Praise God, he turned that fire out and he gave us a new heart. He gave us a new mind. And a new fire, by the way. A fire for the passion of the glory of Jesus Christ. To be passionate for something that means something for eternity. Let's pray.